It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 369 for November 17th, 2013. This week, my favorite text editor has released a major upgrade. With Thanksgiving approaching, it seems to be time to be thankful for the wealth of free and donationware applications available. And in short circuits, the Windows 8.1 update that should have been the easiest turned out to be the hardest. Facebook makes an offer Snapchat has refused. And what a difference an S makes. It's been a while since I've written about text editors, and it's about time to do it again because my favorite text editor just became a lot more colorful. Maybe you think color for a text editor is silly, and maybe I would have agreed with you until this week. Several years ago, I realized that UltraEdit was simply indispensable, so I bought what's called a non-expiring license that pays for all updates forever. Then I realized that UltraEdit Studio offered some additional capabilities that were helpful, and I upgraded from UltraEdit to UltraEdit Studio. If you're a programmer or somebody who needs to analyze data, you absolutely must have a text editor. But if those tasks aren't in your job description, what's the point? The point is that if you write anything, books, magazine articles, web commentaries, blogs, letters to your mother, a text editor might help you to be a better writer. Our brains work in two modes, creative and critical, or maybe writer and editor, or maybe writer and designer. The trouble with a word processor such as Microsoft Word or WordPerfect or LibreOffice Writer is that the creative writer part of the brain can be hijacked by the critic editor designer part of the brain. You notice a red squiggle under a word, or you stop to think about whether something you just wrote should be set in boldface or italic. None of that matters when you're writing. Get rid of the distractions and you'll create a better article. You'll still need to edit it, but that should happen when your mind is in editor mode. And you'll still need to design the output, but that's a task for a time when your brain is in designer mode. If you're writing, just write. Period. And that's what a text editor can help you to do. I wrote this article in Ultra Edit Studio. In UltraEdit, I can't set text in bold or italic. There's no option to create indented text blocks, no hanging paragraphs, no indents. I have to concentrate on just writing. So if you need to write, I encourage you to try a text editor. UltraEdit is my favorite, but there are free versions of text editors too. KEdit, Notepad++, or even the Windows Notepad Editor. Those who need more than just basic text editing should definitely consider UltraEdit, though, or UltraEdit Studio. As for what's new this time around, the first and most obvious change is the new version's themes. Now, if you think this is just silly eye candy, try the new version for an hour or two. Then switch back to the old version. You might change your mind. And if you look at the image shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you might be distressed by the typeface shown on the document. And that's not what UltraEdit comes with. It's not an UltraEdit function. I've just found that what's called the DPC Custom Mono Typeface works really well for what I do. The typeface is provided by distributed proofreaders. 
If you don't like it, you can use any other typeface that you prefer. In fact, if you like the DPC custom mono typeface, you have to go to the distributed proofreader's website and download it. I think that programmers will immediately notice additional benefits that themes offer. Skin Alter Edit to match your style and preferences, and that includes the ability to modify default syntax highlighting. Any word files you add will pick up the colors you specify in your own personal settings. Layouts are closely related to themes. Alter Edit Studio has supported multiple layouts and profiles for a long time, but the new version provides three default configurations, power user with lots of icons, balanced, and clean, a minimalist approach. The problem with earlier versions allowed updates to overwrite configurations, but now the new Layout Manager allows you to retain those configurations from one version to the next. There's a full list of changes, and there are a lot of them, on the Ultra Edit Studio website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Most of the applications I discuss on TechBiter Worldwide are commercial applications, ones you pay for, download, and install. But numerous free applications exist, some as free versions of applications that have more powerful paid versions, and others that are simply provided at no cost. Occasionally, I like to describe some of these hidden gems because with no advertising budget, these applications are all but invisible. So with Thanksgiving just around the corner, now seemed a good time to thank the developers for some of these applications. I include in this list applications that solicit or accept contributions, and I encourage contributions if you find the application provides a useful function for you. Let's start with FileZilla. Although I use Dreamweaver to create the TechBiter Worldwide website, and although Dreamweaver has a built-in FTP application, I don't use it. Instead, I upload each week's updates with FileZilla. One of the reasons I use FileZilla is its ability to allow a text file on an FTP site to be edited in a text editor. This is important to me because sometimes an idea for a segment occurs to me when I'm not in the office. So I type the notes, or sometimes the entire first draft of the full article, in UltraEdit, and then use FileZilla to upload it to my FTP server. If I decide to make additions later from some other location, all I have to do is connect to the site, select the file, and choose Edit. Now granted, there are lots of other ways to accomplish this now using one of the free online file storage applications, but I used FileZilla to edit files before online file storage was available. As an FTP client, FileZilla is an outstanding choice because it handles plain FTP, and I don't recommend plain FTP because everything is sent in plain text. But it also handles both secure protocols, both SFTP and FTPS. You'll find a link to the FileZilla website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll find a link to every project's website throughout this report. Next up is LibreOffice, which is not Microsoft Office. The developers in Redmond and elsewhere have created a remarkable suite of applications for Microsoft, but really it's overkill for a lot of people. LibreOffice has nearly as much functionality as its Microsoft counterpart, and it's free. If you depend on Microsoft's Visio or Publisher, 
you'll want to stick with Microsoft Office. LibreOffice can retrieve graphics from Visio and Publisher, but it can't really edit those documents themselves. LibreOffice applications open more slowly than Microsoft Office components. There's no ribbon, and the interface bears a striking resemblance to applications from the 1990s. But the functionality that you need is all there. Although LibreOffice can read and write files in Microsoft's formats, I recommend sticking with Microsoft products if your work requires that you share the writing and editing of documents with others in such a way that each participant must work on the file several times. On the other hand, if there's only a single translation involved from or to LibreOffice, everything should work as expected. In fact, I know people who move documents between systems many times without a problem. So really, the danger is minimal, and frequently it depends on what features are used in each document. LibreOffice includes equivalents for most of the Microsoft Office components. There's Writer, think of Word, Calc, which relates to Excel, Impress, that's PowerPoint, Base, that's Access, and Draw. Now here, Microsoft doesn't really have an equivalent program. But if you're a OneNote fan, take note of the fact that LibreOffice has no application that would take the place of Microsoft's OneNote. You might wonder why you'd need a bulk rename utility. And the first time you open the program, you might be inclined to run out of the room screaming. The bulk rename utility has one of the busiest screens I've ever seen, and that makes it intimidating. So why do you want one, and why do you want this one? Well, file names created by digital cameras, for example, are horrible. Nothing more than a string of letters and numbers. Maybe you'd like to rename all of the images from a particular event with the same name and a sequence number. That's exactly what the bulk rename utility does. Although the screen appears complicated, that's because there are so many options. If all you want to do is manually select a batch of files and rename them so they include an event name and a sequence number, all you need to do is select the files you want to rename, then type the event name you want to use, add the numbering you want along with any padding for the numbering, confirm that the files will be renamed in the manner you want them, and then click the Rename button. Check the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website and see how simple this really complex screen actually is. Ever wonder what's in your computer? CPU-Z is a free utility from CPU-ID, as in Central Processing Unit ID. It's not a misspelling of Cupid. It provides information about what's inside the computer, including the CPU, memory, mainboard, and more. But it also acts as a shill for driver agent, a system that claims to check the computer for outdated device drivers, download them, and install them. A link from CPU-Z goes to a free scan option that identifies outdated drivers, some of which may not actually be outdated, but then it won't allow you to download them unless you pay. In other words, there's no free sample. Even worse, the application you have to download for the free scan attempts to trick users into a standard application. That standard application includes the AVG antivirus application, which you may not want if you have some other antivirus application running. Many of the people who have tried Driver Agent give it low ratings, and because of that, I recommend CPU-Z with caution. Still, if you stay away from the Check for Driver updates and the Check for BIOS update buttons, it's safe enough to use, and it really does provide some useful information. Here's something exciting. You can mount an ISO as a virtual drive. All right, I already hear the questions. What the heck's an ISO file, and why would I want to mount it? 
Well, an ISO file is one of several formats used to create a disk image. If you have an ISO file, you have two options for using it. You can burn the file to a CD or DVD, or you can use a program such as Virtual Clone Drive to mount it. The ISO might be an installation file because some software developers provide their files in ISO format. The user then burns the file to a disk and installs it. Or maybe you'd prefer to skip that step and just install the applications from the ISO. Well, to do that, you have to mount it. In the case you'll see illustrated on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I had an ISO of a video. I can't play the ISO directly, but I can mount it. Then it appears to be a DVD, and then I can use the VLC media player to play it. Do you need data encryption? The chances are pretty good that you're not a terrorist or a spy, but there's probably some information on your computer that you would prefer to keep private. A good example would be financial records. That would be a problem if a thief found them after stealing your computer. Now, desktop computers aren't stolen very often, but they are sometimes stolen. Notebook computers are common targets of thieves, mainly because they can be converted quickly to cash. But if the thief is smart, he'll first look to see if there's any useful data on the computer. And if you keep proprietary business data or government data on your portable computer and it's not encrypted, shame on your IT manager. TrueCrypt is free and it can be used to encrypt an entire computer or just specific directories. After encrypting the data, gaining access to it involves mounting the encrypted data as a drive letter and then providing the encryption password. TrueCrypt is relatively easy to use, but it's important to read and understand the instructions. If you make certain assumptions about how TrueCrypt works, you'll do more than encrypt your data. You'll destroy it. Earlier in the program, I wrote about UltraEdit Studio, and I also mentioned Notepad++. I like text editors because they're what you need if you write a program or a script, but I also like them because they're handy for the first phase of writing for publication, because you're not distracted by formatting or considerations at a time when formatting should really be the furthest thing from your mind. UltraEdit, as I mentioned earlier, today's program is my favorite because of its versatility, but it is definitely not free. If you need a plain text editor and you're on a $0 budget, definitely take a look at Notepad++. When I'm working on somebody else's computer and I need a text editor, Notepad++ is what I download and install. Maybe you're looking for an image viewer. Everybody has a digital camera these days. That may be overstating the case just a little. But cameras are now embedded in phones, computers, and tablets, even the smaller ones. Some people even have cameras that are just cameras. And even the current crop of phone-based cameras are capable of producing technically good images. But how do you sort through all those images? There's no shortage of applications that allow you to view images, but one of my favorites is the Fast Stone Viewer because it also displays photos that have been saved in camera RAW format, not just the JPEG format. The viewer supports all of the major graphic formats, BMP, JPEG, JPEG 2000, GIF, PNG, PCX, TIFF, eh, pretty much everything, in addition to the camera RAW files. It includes provisions for viewing and managing images, comparing images, removing red eye, resizing large images for use in email, cropping and color adjustments, and slideshow creation with or without music. In other words, this program would be a pretty darn good value if you had to pay for it. Perhaps you'd like to burn a CD or a DVD. 
you have an ISO file, remember those, talked about them earlier, and you don't want to mount it as a drive, but instead you want to create a disk that you can send to somebody, what you need is a disk burning application. Of course, you also need a computer that contains a drive that can burn CDs or DVDs, but most computers already have that. Image Burn is another example of an application that would be a good value if you paid for it, because in addition to being able to create a disk from an ISO file, it can also write files and folders to a disk. This makes it easy to send large files or large numbers of files to somebody using inexpensive optical media. But it doesn't stop there. ImageBurn can also convert any disk, at least any disk without copy protection, to an ISO file. And it can create an ISO file from a series of files and folders. In other words, if you need to do something with files that are on a disk or with files that you want to place on a disk, ImageBurn is a really good place to start. And there's one more thing. If you have a CD, whether it's blank or not, and you want to find out who manufactured it, or you want to find out other information, such as the sectors, size, supported write speeds, and lots more, then Discovery Mode does that. Why would anybody want to use a feature to find out who the manufacturer is? After all, there's a name on the disc. Well, that's true. But keep in mind, disc manufacturers often make discs for each other. Each disk does, however, contain a manufacturer ID, and ImageBurn can read that MID value. So when I slip a Maxell DVD-R into the optical drive and ask ImageBurn to tell me who made it, I find out that the manufacturer is actually Ritec. Some of these utilities are really good at taking care of minor annoyances, or major annoyances in some cases. Have you ever tried to delete a file or a directory only to be told that it's in use by another process? If you can't figure out which application has locked the file, the usual solution involves closing applications until the lock is released, or simply rebooting the computer. And if the file happens to be locked by a virus or other malware, it'll probably still be locked when you restart the computer. Now, there are good reasons for file locks. Microsoft Word, for example, locks a file when it's open so that some other application can't change the file at the same time you're writing it or editing it. But sometimes file locks aren't released when an application closes, and as a result, the file becomes inaccessible, at least until you reboot the computer. In the example that I illustrate on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I created a small file in Word, left it open in Word, and then attempted to delete the file. Now, I can't imagine any real-life situation in which I'd really want to do that, but it's a really easy example. When I try to delete the file, I'm told that it's locked. I can try again and again and again, but it's always going to be locked until I close Word. And until I do that, I can't touch the file. Now, imagine that I've closed Word, but the file has remained, for whatever reason, locked. I really don't want to take time to reboot the computer, so I right-click the file and click What's Locking This File. Lock Hunter opens and shows the owner of the lock. I'm then given the opportunity to unlock the file, delete it, or other. Now, the other category is helpful for files and folders that appear not to be locked but still can't be deleted. Options include unlock and rename, unlock and copy, terminate the locking process, and even delete the locking process. There is also an option to delete the file at the next system restart. Being able to delete the locking process can be helpful in fighting malware, but this is a dangerous option, one that should be used only by somebody who understands the implications of the action. Have you ever been in one location and really needed to get a file from your computer that's not where you are? 
Sometimes I'm at the office. I need to use an application that's available on my computer at home, but not at the office. Well, I could drive home, do what I need, and then drive back, but that would consume at least an hour. It's a lot easier if I just connect to the computer at home while remaining at the office. LogMeIn has a free version and several paid versions. Anybody who needs to provide support for clients probably has a subscription to one of the fee-based options, but if you need to just connect occasionally to another computer, the free version is all you'll need. When you log on, you see a list of all the computers you have access to. In the example illustrated on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I selected a notebook computer. That computer could be in another room, it could be in a building across town, or it could be in a hotel room halfway around the world. All you need is an internet connection, and LogMeIn will set up a secure, encrypted connection between the two machines. So you'll see a screenshot of my notebook computer's screen from the desktop computer. You can log on and use the computer as if you're sitting right in front of it. The free version is also a handy option if you have family members or friends who often need your help with program settings. Instead of driving to their location, you can just log on to their computer. What do you use to watch DVDs and video files on your computer? If you're using the built-in media player, you might be missing something. If you want to play an ISO file, remember remember ISO files that you mounted previously with Virtual Clone Drive? Or if you just want to watch a DVD, you need a video player. Videoland's VLC is free, and it doesn't try to sneak other applications onto your computer. In addition to playing standard DVDs, VLC can play virtually all video files and audio files. And that's not all. VLC can be your default player for all media types, but unlike some other players, it allows you to decide and doesn't simply claim all media types as its own. Granted, the interface is relatively plain, but it's also really easy to use. If you want something fancier, you can choose an alternate start option and open a skinned view. I tend to watch videos full screen, so the appearance of the player doesn't really matter a whole lot to me. When it comes to powerful options, you'll find that VLC has about everything you'd want, with lots of adjustments and effects. These include options to apply various video effects, adjust the sound with a graphic equalizer, and use the program's hotkeys to control VLC's operation. So, there you have it, my quick list of freeware and donationware. And many of the applications I've described are provided as freeware, completely without obligation. Others are donationware, and I encourage you to support developers when you find a donationware application is useful on a regular basis. In short circuits, most of the systems I've updated from Windows 8 to 8.1 proceeded smoothly, but most is not all, and for the past month I've been battling with Windows 8.1 on an Acer Iconia tablet. Although I had planned to format the tablet's hard drive and reinstall Windows 8 this weekend, that turned out not to be necessary. And the oddity here is that the update of a tablet should have been the easiest to accomplish. After I upgraded the tablet to Windows 8.1, the performance resembled that of a 1994 computer with an Intel 8386 processor running Windows 3.11. Slow wasn't quite the word to describe it. Glacial came close, but that didn't quite get it either. 
A call to Acer support elicited the expected answer, update the system's various drivers. I did that, and the tablet improved from glacial to merely lethargic. Copying files across the LAN was painfully slow, and even low-res videos wouldn't play reliably, so I called Acer support again. For half an hour, the Level 1 technician politely told me that I should try installing some other video player, and I politely told her that I had already tried several video players, all with the same results. Eventually, she gave up and transferred me to a Level 2 technician who understood the problem but didn't have a resolution for it. On Tuesday of this past week, I found a website where several people with the same problem had discussed the issue, and it seemed that one person had found a solution, a system power setting buried under one of the menus. I suspected that this user's first clue involved noticing the tablet was normal when running on AC power and slow when running on battery power. That probably led the person who discovered the problem to compare power settings to see what was different between AC and battery settings. Specifically, what I had to search for is called Intel Dynamic Platform and Thermal Framework Settings Low Power Mode Setting. All I had to do was find that and turn it off. After I made the change, the system speed was dramatically improved. Tapping the screen once again produced a response. Programs opened quickly. Videos played. But that wasn't quite enough. I visited the Acer website again and downloaded even newer drivers and installed them. One of the driver installation procedures explicitly mentioned Intel Dynamic Platform and Thermal Framework settings. So, when the driver updates were complete and after I had restarted the tablet, I dived into the power menu again to confirm that the Intel Dynamic Platform and Thermal Framework Settings Low Power Mode setting had remained the same. Well, the setting was no longer available on the Power Options menu, so apparently somebody at Intel had found the problem and decided to eliminate it by eliminating the setting. I also changed the video performance settings to optimize for video quality, even when operating on battery power. Now this incident reveals a common problem with Windows-based systems, one that those who use Apple computers rarely see, if ever. On a Windows computer, the hardware comes from one of many companies, and the operating system comes from another company. Drivers come from yet other companies. Sometimes, one company's improvement causes a problem for another company's hardware or software. Now, Apple, because of its overbearing Big Brother approach, generally doesn't have this problem. That, however, is not to say Apple's approach is right. Windows systems generally have more flexibility, and the components cost less because there's competition. Apple systems suffer fewer compatibility-based problems, but they don't have as much flexibility in terms of components, and components that are available cost more. That's not to say Apple's approach is wrong, either. There are no perfect computers. There are no perfect operating systems. There are only choices. A couple of mid-twenties developers, when offered billions for their business that hadn't yet turned a profit, said no. 
The application in question is called Snapchat, a photo messaging application. It was created by five Stanford University students and allows users to take photos, record videos, and add text and drawings, then send them on to a controlled list of recipients. Recipients can view the images or videos for no more than 10 seconds, after which they're deleted from the Snapchat server. As you might expect, Snapchat works only on Apple and Android devices. Facebook wants the technology. The Stanford guys think they can get more for the application, more than the billions already offered by Facebook. The service started in 2011. That's when the two primary developers, Evan Spiegel and Bobby Murphy, launched it. Now, this raises a question. Are billions in the hand now worth more than the potential for additional billions later? Don't try to time the market. That's a common warning from stockbrokers, and it keeps running through my mind. Stay tuned. additional very brief items in short circuits. Be sure to check the TechBiter Worldwide website to see how big a difference an S makes. And by the way, next week we're off. I expect to be attacked and rendered virtually unconscious by a turkey. So happy Thanksgiving a few days early. We'll be back on December 1st. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.